Hello and welcome to Fraggle Talk Classic, the unofficial Fraggle Walk podcast brought to you by ToughPigs.com. My name is Beth and I am re-watching for the millionth time. My name is Julia and I'm watching for the first time in 10 years. My name is Adam and I am watching for the first time literally ever, even though I've been a huge Muppet fan all my life. Not a Muppets fan, just one. Guess. Gonzo. You, you got me there. You got you first. Not even hesitated. Good lord. Because Gonzo's the greatest. It's in his name. He is. He is. So today we're watching the terrible tunnel. The terrible tunnel. Ooh. Can I just say also, Miss Nomer, this episode's actually amazing. Not terrible. <laughs> it is. Yeah. When Anthony was writing about this episode in the in the forty years later reviews, he was saying how. His young son loves this episode and sings along and laughs at Sir Blunderbrain. It's great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I definitely remember being scared by this episode when I was younger. Oh, yeah. No, I've got some stuff in there about how, like, no, this is scary. There's, there's, this is, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's got that Elma that can really creep out kids to it. Good. It's just like, it's, it's not like super duper dark and scary, but it's just like creepy enough that I can see that this would have freaked me out as a kid. Which plays also into the themes of the episode. So let's dive in because I have a whole bunch of like anthropological analysis to drop and I'm excited. Yes. Before we get into the actual plot, like we, we don't, we're at the point where we really don't need to talk about the theme song because we covered it in the early episodes. I do, however, want to point out that over Boober, there is a different voice that plays, at least in the version I watched on Apple TV, which I did read on Muppet Wiki. It's Wembley, is that correct? Yeah, it's I Wembley it was, and not Boober. I, I thought it was Gobo at first until I looked up on Muppet Wiki, but was that going to be a thing that they were going to do with the theme song, or why, why, why did this happen? Well, I mean, so in the version that I watched, it was just Wembley saying it, like he's the one on screen and he's the one saying Wait, the thing. Where did where did you watch it? YouTube. Oh, interesting. I watched it on Apple TV and it was Boober, but it was Wembley's voice over Boober doing the normal shot of him saying down at Fraggle Rock. No, in the YouTube one I watched, it was Wembley saying it. And I have a thing in my notes like, ah, ha, ha, we've got an organic growing and changing theme song. Eat your heart out, Bojack Horseman. Oh, (laughs) I don't think it's going to change, though. I'm pretty certain that this is... Maybe a one-off? Beth, do you it know? It is a one-off. Uh, yeah. Both versions Aww. are accurate. No one hallucinated anything okay. this time. <laughs> and yeah, it, it doesn't come back. I, I did read on Muppet Wiki that, like, yeah, like, Adam saw the version with Wembley, and then, like, I, that version got changed, but then they edited it back in, I think, for, like, the Disney Channel, but... They didn't have the footage of Wembley anymore, and that's where the version I saw came in. But I don't remember seeing anything about if this was going to be like a thing that they were going to try out with all of the Fraggles or they did it once and then they just forgot or, or something. I mean, it would make sense if it was like, cause like this one's a very Wembley centered episode. Mm-hmm. It would make total sense if it was like, oh, whoever's the center of the episode gets to be the one saying down at Fraggle Rock. Yeah, but no dice. No dice. So the Doc and Sprocket opener is rad. Further proof that Doc is not neurotypical. Hundo <laughs> percent. Hundred percent. I love it's such a so Sprocket was digging in the garden and found a, a horseshoe and Doc immediately can clock not just the make and year model, but the alloy that the horseshoe was made in. Mm-hmm. And then he also is just like, oh, also Sprocket, your discovery's not special. And I'm like, dude, you were I like liked you for a second there, man. And now you're being a jerk to your dog. Yeah, there's big pinky in the brain vibes here. 
it's notable that he can he can tell these things about the horseshoe by looking at it, by listening to the sound it makes when he's banging his pliers on it, and then smelling it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure which pieces of information he's getting from which senses, but it's definitely a multi-sensory thing. Yep. I feel like we've covered in previous episodes, like, it does seem like Doc knows kind of what he's doing in his profession. It's just that normally he applies it to, like, just weird stuff that nobody actually really needs. But he's competent in doing it. Yeah. I also, like, it is it is interesting because I feel like we're getting to watch him and Sprocket's relationship develop a little bit. Because he changes his mind. He's like, actually, I need this for my collapsible bookshelf. And tries to take it. And Sprocket doesn't want to give it up. So he finally goes, all right, fine, I won't take it. And, like... Yeah, it took you, like, three tries to get that Sprocket was setting a boundary. But also, like, you heard it, which is more than you've done up to this point, Doc. So, you know, it's a low bar, but you did clear it this time. (laughs) It's true. Progress. So, yeah, then we get Boober and Wembley accompanying Gobo up to the hole to outer space. Mm -hmm. And Boober's got his lucky flower pot that he's banging on for good luck. Specifically banging on to drive away beasts. Mm-hmm. And gets Wimbley to bang on it along with him. The flower pot feels like it's an homage to knocking on wood. Do y'all know where that comes from? No. Do you know the original thing of knocking on wood? Why that's a thing for Not luck? Not the top of my head. Uh, old Celtic tradition. When you are knocking on wood, you are asking the latent spirit of the dryad who lived in the tree that wood came from to aid you in whatever task you're talking about. Whoa. Dang. Right? That's right? very cool. Anyways, <laughs> I like that it's a, a latent spirit because Boober's lucky flower pot, which Gobo remarks, not so lucky for the flower because it's just kind of a dead looking twig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when Wembley accidentally breaks the flower pot by dropping it and Boober is immediately like, oh, that's fine. I have another one right here. Yeah. And that also is a little dead looking twig. Yep. Uh, the theming of superstitions in this episode is so incredibly well done Mm -hmm. Um, because you get to see like superstitions that don't seem to be rooted in things and you get to see superstitions that are rooted in actual good advice like that bit that he has afterwards the when the about cracks when one becomes two, run away and say ooh, like oh yeah if you live in an underground society yeah, you would have a saying about what to do if cracks are starting to sprout and spread because that indicates a lack of structural stability. But just as clearly, Boober doesn't understand that that's why this is a saying because as soon as he sees a crack that isn't moving at all, he just starts running and going, ooh, ooh, ooh. And it's like, oh, you're, you're just, <laughs> you're, you're following the formula, but you don't understand why it's there. And not all of them are readily apparent as to why they're there. Like, the oh, it's a flower pot. You smack it. It drives away beasts. Sure, I guess. Yeah. Also, like, the whispering of, like, the... Is it Rickaraka? Rickaraka. Yeah. And, like, who knows why, you know, silly creatures think that opening an umbrella indoors is unlucky or walking under a ladder is unlucky. You know, they're just these things that we hear and little snippets get passed down. I mean, walking under a ladder is unlucky because the person on top could drop a thing on you or you could knock the ladder and knock the person on top off. (laughs) There you go. Just like whistling in a theater is unlucky because stagehands used to be old sailors and they would communicate to each other through whistles. So if you're whistling an unfamiliar tune, you might have just signaled a dude to drop a several hundred pound set piece right on your head. Holy dang. I never knew that. Yeah, I feel like with a lot of superstitions, like the roots of them come from very practical like reasons why they came about. But now in this day and age, 
they've just like stuck around and people have have those superstitions even though mm-hmm. it's not quite as applicable anymore which is totally the theme of this episode and i have mm-hmm. a little thing about like which superstitions are clearly there for a reason and which ones aren't but also there's a lot going on with this episode and i would love to dive in uh we get some really good wembley detail after they come back with the letter and like first wembley's following Boober's superstition and then Wembley's also following Gobo's skepticism and he's just sort of flip-flopping based on whichever one is the strongest personality in the room and the writers didn't need to predict that I would be this person in the future and call me out that hard Uh, (laughs) but they did and I'm insulted yeah we get to see Wembley like truly Wembling in this episode and doing kind of what he's I think most known for in this show just flip-flopping whoever is like making the point in the moment he's like oh yeah this is totally it and then changing his mind immediately when someone else makes a different point hey you know what they say wembley's gonna wemble mm-hmm. yeah they never address whether wembley the character was named after the concept of wembling or whether the concept of wembling was named after wembley the character but it doesn't need explaining because it's just perfect right and it's something that yeah comes up multiple times throughout the series um so they decide that they're gonna go to the storyteller moki's like yeah we're gonna go to the storyteller and oh my god please tell me this character comes back oh absolutely yeah she is one of my favorite recurring characters she's not voiced by richard hunt in the future right correct just in this episode is she voiced by richard hunt um from then on she is voiced by i believe terry Yeah. yeah terry yeah and then in Back to the Rock, one of the things that I appreciate is that all female characters are voiced by female performers. And so in Back to the Rock, she's voiced by Donna Kimball. Yay. That's right, yeah. Um, I also love that, like, uh, I just, I love, so, and I have this in both of these episodes, but the fact that these two episodes are starting to flesh out not just the culture of the Fraggles, but the history yes. and the lore. Like, there's a person whose job it is to collect stories and history. Mm-hmm. This is... And then we get to see the actuality of that and compare it to the story. This is like Patrick Rothfuss, Brandon Sanderson level of like <laughs> world building. And I'm super here for it. Um, also, I love that her first ask is, oh, I want to hear the life and times of Fedora Fraggle, which is obvious. Fedora Fraggle couldn't get a date and went on the Internet to complain about it. Next story. <laughs> I did. I did clock the name Fedora and I was like, oh, that poor Fraggle. Got saddled mm-hmm. with that name for their life. <laughs> it wasn't problematic in the 80s. <laughs> it was acceptable in the 80s. Yeah, I guess in the 80s it was like, the Blues Brothers wore fedoras. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I love the line, pick a story, any story, I know them all, and if I don't, I'll fake it. Yes. It's really good. Yeah, I forgot, I love the storyteller. It's nice to see her finally pop up in the show. Yeah. She might be my new favorite character, honestly. One of these days, I'm going to see if anyone has already written about this on Tough Pigs. And if not, I definitely need to write a piece about the various storytellers in the Henson properties, because there are at least three. And all three of them were, I think, foundational to my to who I became and my my yearning to become a storyteller. Because we get this one, we get uh, the one that was most influential to me was the one from The Tale of the Bunny Picnic. And then, of course, there's the storyteller from Jim Henson's The Storyteller. Okay. Yeah, I've only seen Bunny Picnic once, and so I don't remember the storyteller in that one. But I did think of the sto- the show, The Storyteller. Yeah. So the bunny, yeah. when he, like, rides into town on, like, a little cart that he pulls on a bicycle, and he's got, like, a 
tea set up top and cute things hanging along and all the bunnies are singing mm-hmm. a song that he's coming to town like this one time a year that he comes to town and then of course you've got like the absolute like dark coziness of the storyteller show and mm-hmm. this version where the storyteller is just like a part of the town she's just you know she's a person in your neighborhood mm-hmm. and all three of them have aspects that I love so much about like this is the person who holds the stories that we need to hear for whatever reason, whether we come mm-hmm. to her of like, I want to hear this story or whether the storyteller is like, mm, I see what situation you're in. Let me tell you a little story about that. Yup. So they go to the storyteller and they're like, yo, tell us the story of the terrible tunnel. Is it real? Is it fake? Is it a superstition? What's going on? And we get such a banger of a song. Mm-hmm. Can I go off about the music theory of this real quick? Or so, do you have a thing before we go? Real quick, just before... So when they first ask, like, Wembley's like, hey, I want to hear about the terrible tunnel. And the storyteller has this reaction. Mm-hmm. He's like, the, the t- terrible tunnel? Please, anything but that. And, like, I counted. There were six puhs before that, please. It was please. Folks, when someone is that adamant about, I do not want to talk about this topic... You let it go. Right. Yeah. You do not say, oh, well, well, it's just a story. Like, no, this woman has seen things. I don't know what she's seen, but they need to let it go. I mean, counterpoint, the disturbing parts of history are the most important ones to look at and examine. Ooh, dang, that is a good counterpoint. Okay. <laughs> so the song. So the song. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go off as a music nerd for a second. Yes, This please. song is a beautiful genre mashup. Because the, the structure of the lyrics is classic old world, like, proto-European ballad. You've got, like, epithets adorning characters. They're characterized, this song is specifically characterized by long lines with a really consistent meter. And then the ends of the verses have repeated lines so that the audience can come in and sing that last song with you. So it's like an audience participation thing. Uh, and they've got these long lines so you can tell all these really intricate stories. But they put a funk bass under it, <laughs> and I'm really here for it. I'm super, super here for this, like, new world, old world genre mashup. And I thought that the genre, like, the old school genre was just sort of a like a an accident or sort of like a head tip, a head, head tilt, hat tip, head tip, hat tilt. A nod. <laughs> uh, and then, no, it's 100% a full-scale reference because... When the old when the tunnel actually speaks, the tunnel speaks in like an old English dialect. Mm-hmm. It's Wait, not what? you'll never go home again. It's you'll never go home again, which is old school. Like again, proto English. So that's an intentional through line. And there's another detail in like right towards the very end that like specifically notes this is this is no this is an intentional set of theming. This is an intentional through line. But just the attention to detail in that is fantastic. That's so great. I was going to ask you, like, what are we calling this genre of music? I was like, like Halloween country, uh, folk medieval ghost. Well, yeah, like the what it made me think of. And I like know so much less about music theater. I listen to show tunes and the mountain goats and Taylor Swift. And that's almost exclusively it. So Wait, I don't you know listen as... to the mountain goats. Have we not talked about this? Oh, they're my favorite band. We can talk. The, okay, yeah, same. We'll talk about this. Off we'll air. talk about it. <laughs> but, you know, the, the vibe I got from it was like kind of like the storytelling like version of like old country songs like a Johnny Cash or like mm-hmm. the song Ghost Riders in the Sky yes. but like certainly with like a, a different like bent to it but that I couldn't like put my finger on it I also wrote down Ghost Riders in the Sky 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those fun fact, those specific country ballads draw from the like old, older, older school, like around the time of like the Iliad and Odyssey and all of that, because uh, stuff was an oral tradition. That was the only mm-hmm. way to pass it down. And it was easier if you did it with song because that made the story easier to memorize. It made it easier to key into. And you got to have like a musical accompaniment, which added an emotional undertone to the story. And so that's why if you look like when she's singing, it's never just Sir Blunderbrain. It's the brave Sir Blunderbrain did this. Uh, and that's because whenever you have a character, the character would always have one of a handful of epithets so that it was easier to remember this character and the character's details. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. That's also why it's not just the dangerous, it's the terrible tunnel. You've got the uh, alliteration, which makes it easier to remember, and also the, again, the epithet that is being adorned to the specific villain so that it's easier to remember that as well. Dang. Humans are cool. Awesome. That tracks. That makes sense that, like, probably multiple genres of music and just, like, take from... Yeah, the the old school ballads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did anyone else feel personally attacked by the line a thousand years ago or maybe even 33? Yeah. I wrote that line down. That was, I thought that line was funny. <laughs> yeah, I'm turning 33 this year. So I guess that makes me a thousand years. Yep. By Fraggle standards, absolutely. You're now a thousand years old. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Yay. I also really appreciate, as we're getting this story, like, there's a legitimately frightening sequence of these, like, Fraggles going through a tunnel and just vanishing. And then we get Sir Blunderbuss and his, like, Pez dispenser-looking helmet that keeps flopping up and down. And it's like, <laughs> oh, thank you for the physical comedy mm-hmm. to offset this genuinely unsettling, like, and then there were two, and then there was one, and then there were none kind of vibe. Yep. So an important thing to notice is that he does look an awful lot like Wembley, and he's performed by Steve Whitmire, who performs Wembley. I did clock that he was performed by Steve Whitmire. One of one thing I noticed about this episode is that there are parts of it that are very dark, and if you are watching on your laptop when there's a lot of sun coming through the windows, there's a lot that like in in the dark, like terrible tunnel sequences where I was like, I can't see fully what's going on, but. That's cool to know that he looks also like Wembley. Because I did, yeah, noticing that he was performed by Steve, I was like, oh, that makes sense because this is a Wembley-centric episode. So mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. makes sense that since Wembley's going to end up there eventually, it would be the same performer. And I, I tried to get a, a good screenshot of this. I could only get a blurry, zoomed-in one. He's got an image of himself on his shield. Oh, <laughs> That's great. That's just that's just good marketing. Or else another Fraggle. Yeah. That, that looks like both Sir Blunderbrain and Wembley. Who knows? It's just another unnamed Fraggle. I also so I I talked about how this specific song is like structured in the way that like old classic bard tales were told. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story itself also follows those beat for beat. Like you have a hero, there. Sorry, you have a menace that's killing people. You have a hero that shows up to fight it. There's a grueling battle that lasts a long time. The hero rescues people, but winds up sacrificing himself. But specifically, dies off camera, so there's a possibility for sequel. That's Beowulf. <laughs> that's Beowulf. That is 100 percent the beats of Beowulf. Yeah, and like also 90 percent of Western films. So that I mean, who yeah. were Western films were cribbing from samurai, and samurai films were cribbing yeah, that's true. from I older also, school. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Again, it all just like goes back to, I don't know, the mm. classic, very old, ancient like stories. And we just are taking that and reformatting it. Yeah, that's that's Gilgamesh. That's mm-hmm. Sir Arthur, uh, like or King Arthur, Sir Arthur. Uh, 
but just it feels really respectful almost like it, it takes it from a nod to an homage of like no 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 we are going to structure this the same way not only are we structuring the song this way we're structuring all of the beats of the story this way and it takes the level of like if we're talking about superstitions which are in and of themselves stories that have been passed down through generations it makes perfect sense that this would be an homage to some of the oldest stories that we have mm-hmm. the show's really smart and i'm not good at being concise and other people should talk now no i was hoping you would talk about the music to this depth yeah, you, cool. you, you've Great. got this part covered. <laughs> so after they go to the storyteller, they're still kind of stuck in this back and forth between Gobo being like, oh, well, it's all made up. And Boober's like, no, it's real. And Wembley is kind of pulled back and forth between the two. Can I real quick? I just have one more point about the storyteller puppet. There's a great bit at the end where I think it's Moki says something and the storyteller lifts her glasses up to do the like librarian look at her. Yes. Which clearly means the glasses are like hinged on the back of her head, but it's Mm -hmm. such a great little physical detail. And you'll notice that her eyelids lift at the same time. They did? Yes. Her eyelid. I didn't catch that. That's so cool. Yeah. Her eyelid mechanism and her glasses are connected so that. At the, so she does both at the same time with one motion to indicate, you know, that wide-eyed, oh my goodness, look closer at whatever this thing is I'm reacting to. That's amazing. Love it. So you were saying about uh, Boober and Gobo in conflict and Wembley being torn between them. Right. So that conflict isn't going to get resolved anytime soon. And Wembley is just kind of wembling around being afraid for a bit when he gets roped into playing a game of Heidi Ho. Uh, actually, real quick, can I jump in? Oh, yeah. Again, I have another far too deep of a dive, but I love this episode to pieces, and there's a really salient point being made really subtly here. There's a shot of Boober being just, like, aggressively stressed out about all the superstitions that he needs to do, and he's talking about, like, oh, it's a curse, and there's constant worry, and yada yada. There's a really deep point here being made about anxiety Mm. like the reason that we as humans have anxiety in our gene pool is because we developed at a time where having a false positive about like a potentially life-threatening situation was a lot less costly than having a false negative right if you're like is that sound a tiger if you freak out like it might be a tiger and try to make yourself safe every single time you hear a sound that might be a tiger, you're a lot less likely to get eaten by a heckin' tiger. <laughs> and that's also why we evolved to tell stories, because storytelling is a way to pass on what to do in case there's a tiger while still getting the emotional impact of there being maybe a tiger without having to be exposed to the risk of there being a tiger. That is why humans evolved stories as an evolutionary mechanism. And so having us then be in cities where we don't have to deal with tigers all the time, we have A, brains that freak out and have a bunch of there might be a tiger juice, but we have no actual tigers to spend it on, and B, a bunch of stories that are all designed to affect us in an emotional way and change our behavior, but that are all outdated because we have a completely different set of dangers now. And so we get to see Boober caught in this little microcosm of the human experience that has been around since we started building cities with walls in them. Boom. <laughs> Chef's kiss. Holy crap, I'm so glad you're on my podcast. Uh, you say nice things. <laughs> uh, I was. Uh, thank you for putting words to a feeling that I didn't even know I had until you said it. And I went, Yes! That's how I explain anxiety to my students. It's important. Yeah. Oh, 
and this I will say this is not uh, the first or last time we get to experience, you know, Wembley dealing with anxiety. And there are moments where, you know, it's played for laughs. And there are moments when it's addressed as a serious thing about like, you know, when Mm -hmm. our anxieties are serving us well, because they're warning us about legit stuff to be afraid of. And when it's like, hey, look, there's nothing actually wrong right now. So Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I was gonna say as someone with anxiety, but I feel like I'm not alone when I say as someone with anxiety on this podcast. You know, <laughs> how could you tell? That feels like legit. Like, what, what do you what do you mean by that? Did I say something? I'm so sorry. I, 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 <laughs> um, no, there's just times where like, yeah, your brain like has you in like you know fight or flight mode, and maybe it is like legit. And then there are other times where I don't know. For me personally, like I'm in an anxiety spiral, and I'm able to step back and be like, this is such a stupid thing to be to be so worked up over um and yeah i guess this makes sense why i feel mm-hmm. like wimbley's always been the character i've related to the most yeah it keys into my favorite anxiety hack i had a i had a friend back in the day who whenever they were having like a gnarly anxiety attack they would just sprint up the biggest hill they could find Ooh. and then they felt better because they had like psychosomatically told their brain like oh there was a tiger but we did something about it and then their brain was like cool all right we're good oh dang that's kind of genius yeah right i didn't know if like it was either they were doing it because of either the endorphins or just like tricking your body into doing something completely different but also tiger a column a little column b yeah well so that might be a good way to distinguish between wembley and boober here because they're both clearly anxiety ridden characters Mm -hmm. but boober has all of these tools like whether Mm -hmm. or not his superstitions are actually doing anything is kind of like whether or not they're doing anything externally to ward off danger mm-hmm. may be irrelevant because they're, it's definitely doing something internally of like, okay, I am taking the steps I need to take to keep myself and the ones I care about safe. Right. And Wembley doesn't have those tools. I mean, that, but also so much of these steps are unnecessary and like the stress that is being soothed by these steps doesn't seem to, it, it feels very rooted in the process for Boober. Mm. Like it feels like, the superstitions themselves are sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy for him in a way that again feels sort of like a microcosm of the human experience uh but yeah it, i feel like and i feel like the way that he's portrayed is like yeah he has these superstitions and some of them clearly work and help and some of them don't uh there's a point later that we're going to get to about tying a knot in a tail mm-hmm. that turns out to be really useful in a way that we'll get to but like after we see why it's useful we cut to him just tying a bunch of knots in his tail and it's like well okay you're doing this to make yourself feel better but the actual effect of it is being lost on you you don't understand how this affects the real world you're just sort of living within this slightly different reality i don't know yeah I appreciate that this is a show that can be analyzed on this level of depth, and we were talking about the game of Heidi Ho. <laughs> right, yes. Okay, so the Fraggles are playing the Fraggle equivalent of Marco Polo, where mm-hmm. one person is blindfolded or has their eyes closed and yells out, Heidi, and tries to catch someone else mm-hmm. who you're not able to see because the others are calling out, Ho, in response. And you try to catch one, and when you catch someone, they are now it. Mm-hmm. Wembley gets caught and is now it and tries to wiggle out of it, but he just ends up following this strange voice. Which is genuinely unsettling. Absolutely creepy as heck. Mm-hmm. He gets led down this tunnel that 
he takes it off the blindfold and like he doesn't know where he is but the tunnel is right by where all the fraggles are playing and so i was wondering if did this tunnel just appear to him or has just like no one ever thought to go down that way before where the terrible tunnel is he talks about how there's like this and then there's a right here so i assume it's sort of like one tunnel within a, a slightly more confusing network of tunnels yeah maybe that's it yeah, because he is able to get back there later. Yeah, that's why I was wondering. So I was like, I don't think it just like appeared to him and then disappeared. But well, we also we also don't know how long he was wandering blindfolded, following this one voice. Mm-hmm. So it it seems like time wise, like it might have been you know right next door to the Great Hall, but he might have been following this voice for a while. Yeah, yeah, maybe there's more twists and turns to it that they just cut past. That's a good point. Okay, so eventually Wembley takes off his blindfold, realizes where he is, and gives this adorable little song Mm -hmm. about not being scared of anything, except for being here. Right now. Yeah, that's a very good song. Yeah. Uh, And then he escapes, and we get the traveling Matt section. Yeah. Well, so... I also... Oh, go ahead. So when we see the storyteller... We see the Sir Blunderbrain story Mm -hmm. as told by the storyteller, and comparing the lyrics of her song to what's being shown on screen at first it's a little unclear of like okay are we just you know anthropomorphizing the tunnel itself saying that the tunnel drew a sword and swung back at sir blunderbrain or is there actually anything there that is a legit danger Mm -hmm. and then we see you know this big like almost like a giant clamshell open up and, and a big wind and fog come along and suck in the fraggles and they're you know lost to time and history And so it's a little unclear at that point whether that's just, you know, the legend of, like, what Fraggles came up with of, like, oh, no, this is a tunnel that eats you. Mm -hmm. And now we see Wembley experience that same, you know, massive, almost like a jaw opening to swallow him up and go, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, no, there's there's real danger here. I also love that the danger's not explained. Yeah. Like, you never find out. Does Do we come back to this? Does it show up later in the show? It does not. Wow. Interesting. Bold move. (laughs) I adore that. Yeah, sometimes there's dangers that just don't make any sense. And you, this episode seems to be a lot about like, well, what do we do about that? Not just as an individual, but as a society. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have some thoughts about that once we get back past the traveling Matt section. Yeah. Um, But he does manage to escape. Yep. Um, Before we get to the traveling Matt section, we do see uh, Doc and Sprocket again. And Doc has decided that he does, in fact, want sprocket's horseshoe and he keeps trying to bargain for it which is going to julia's dog corner because that's what i do for a living and that's what i think about all the time that's <laughs> welcome to julia's dog corner Ruff. in a situation where a dog has something i guess for me when that they're not supposed to have not so much that i want because of a thing that i'm doing the act of like bargaining to get that thing with like toys and treats is so real and so in this episode <laughs> I was like, I have been in Doc's position where I'm like, hey, if you give me this like object that is in your mouth, you're not supposed to have plastic or garbage or something. I'll give you this treat. I'll give you this bone. Just drop it, please. Um, so that was my takeaway from this. But obviously, Doc wants the the horseshoe for more specific reasons than just getting away from Sprocket. Mm-hmm. Also, a line where like he's like, I want this, and Sprocket's like, No, and Doc's like, You're being very difficult today, and it's like, Man, just let him keep it. 
Yeah. Right? Dude. Like, sir, it is not Sprocket's fault that you carved a groove the exact size and shape of a horseshoe into this bookcase that you made when you did not have a horseshoe to put in it. And now suddenly someone else has a horseshoe and you want it. All right. Then we then we go to Uncle Traveling Matt's postcard. Um, in this one, he's basically on a fisherman's boat and he is fascinated by the netting that the fishermen are using for their job, which what is, how does he refer to the netting? Just a lot of holes. He refers to the fishermen as the hole sewing creatures because they're repairing their nets. Yeah. And he, he says near the end of the postcard, I think holes are best avoided. Yeah. I also there's a moment in here of just like really excellent puppetry that I want to point out. After he falls in, he climbs up onto a boat, and they have him huck a leg over to the point where he's, like, straddling the side of this boat. And, again, just the immersion is not broken. Absolutely no seams in the world building. Such a good implication of full body autonomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those little moments that you're supposed to not think about the level of great puppetry that it takes because you're supposed to mm-hmm. forget that Traveling Matt is a puppet. If you do something really well, nobody will realize you've done anything at all. I tried to figure out if there was some deeper connection here with Traveling Matt talking about the the dangers of holes as like being connected to the terrible tunnel. He's saying that, you know, they first they sew the holes together and then they load the captive holes into boats, take them out in the middle of the Fraggle Pond and dump them in. And so I was trying to figure out like, well, okay, the Fraggles are getting their knowledge of the dangers of the terrible tunnel through oral history mm-hmm. and culture, like passed on through time. Traveling Matt is just getting this particular knowledge through observation and speculation that turns out to be inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, is that how that type of cultural thing is passed on? Of like, you see a thing, you interpret it kind of correctly and kind of not. Ooh. And then you tell someone else about it and they're like, oh, this is how this thing works. That makes uh, an aggressive amount of sense, actually. That's really cool. I had not made that connection at all. <laughs> Yay. Um, so after the traveling mat section, they realize that Wembley's gone and they start trying to find him. And there's a really, really... Oh, yeah? Well, you might be pointing out the same moment as me. Yeah. There's an excellent moment of character growth. Moki asks the doozers. I noted that too. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they don't say anything to her, which is interesting because they clearly speak the same language. And I wonder if it's because they know what she did. <laughs> I, yeah, this is a really fascinating moment of interspecies relationship progress. Like, it's definitely, it's clearly progress. Like, she is asking the doozers, she is a- addressing them specifically, talking to them like they're sentient creatures, mm-hmm. but then they ignore her and she concludes, doozers can't help us. So it's not a ton of progress. Yeah, I I clocked that as well, because at first I was like, oh, She's asking them for, like, advice or help. That's great. And then immediately she was like, ah, doozers are useless, basically. And I was like, okay, well, the progress isn't there yet. Which, to her credit, they didn't respond to her at all. But, like, it's it's something. And the Fraggles haven't given the doozers much of a reason to start this, you know, new level of talking to each other one-on-one and exchanging information. Because up to this point, all we've seen the doozers gain from the Fraggles is you know, them screwing up their entire way of life and then undoing that damage and then stealing their catapult. That is very true. Um, So there's a specific set of patterns that happen when Wembley comes back. uh, And it's really fascinating to me because he comes back and he's like, hey, I had this horrible, 
unexplainable experience. Um, Red just invalidates it, right? Red is like, no, you didn't. You're wrong. And she tries to do it very gently, which is very, which is a fascinating choice for Red. Does she? <laughs> well, okay, okay. I will say for Red, it's not like she's going like, Wembley, you have no idea what you're talking about. Like in, in that particular tone, like she puts an arm around his shoulder and she's like, let's be honest. You never know what you're talking about. You can't help it. It's just the way you are. And so even though what she's saying is like equally terrible, it's it's terrible no matter what tone you say it in. But she's making <laughs> the best that Red knows right now in her character development. She's trying to be nice about it. She's acknowledging his emotions. Yes. Right? I'll give her credit for that. Kind of. But it's also so condescending. Oh, absolutely. It really absolutely. is. Absolutely. Three of them are essentially like, you know, downplaying and dismissing him entirely. You have Moki who's like, oh, you... This was a dream. It wasn't real. You've got Red, who's like, you're wrong and you don't know what you're talking about. And then you've got Gobo, who's like, the terrible tunnel doesn't exist. What are you talking? You know, you have all three of them being like, nope, you're wrong for these different reasons. And Boober is the only one backing Wembley up. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that's really interesting to me is because Red just invalidates it. Moki is specifically invalidating it with psychology. She's like, oh, mm. this horrible uh, like thing happened. This is your subconscious trying to process a thing. It's not real, but it's indicative of a thing within you. Yeah, finding the reason behind it, yeah. And then Gobo's invalidating it with skepticism and cynicism. He's like, no, 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 that you're wrong because that's not real. And the only one backing him up is Boober, which makes an interesting point about, like, the role of superstition in explaining things. Mm-hmm. There, there's definitely a, like, modernity versus old world belief here. And even though Boober is framed as the holder of superstition that doesn't always fit and he doesn't know why he's holding these superstitions most of the time, he's not wrong in this case. And I find it interesting that even Boober, who's willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, doesn't say, I believe you. He says, maybe you did find the terrible tunnel and maybe it was so powerful that it broke my lucky flower pot. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> he's giving these these maybes and, you know. If anything, Boober should be the one being like, oh my gosh, Wembley saw this terrible thing. Mm, I guess that's true, yeah. Mm. But he says, if you're going to go back, at least tie a knot in your tail for luck. And as soon as he said that, I was like, that's going to come back, isn't it? And yeah. it did, which we'll get to in a bit. So this was what led to my <laughs> social media ramblings about like, we need another word besides gaslighting. This is where I came up with cast lighting yep. because he's he's a Cassandra. No one believes him, and he turns out to be right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's good. That's a good phrase. <laughs> that is a good phrase. I don't know if you saw the updates on that post, but we also came up with another one. Uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not. Ha! Awesome. <laughs> Ripley in Alien, played by Sigourney Weaver, when you're right and no one's trying to convince you that you're mentally unstable, they just choose to ignore your good advice. And then you're proven right. And you're like, mm, whether you believe me or not, yep. I'm right. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a really great bit when they're going through the tunnels to try to find the terrible tunnel again. Gobo walks through a spider web and then like rubs his face and spits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> again, just those little physical details that, because this is puppetry, were put in there on purpose. Absolutely no seams in the world building. 10 out of 10 top-notch puppetry. Oh, something I forgot to mention. So the, the key turning point here is that in the middle of all this, you know, invalidating of Wembley's experience, 
he finally yells, now wait a minute, mm -hmm. you guys are, are wimbling. That's true, yeah. He turns around on them, he says, I know what I saw. Yeah. And it's this wonderful, powerful moment. But then he takes it one step too far and says, and I'm going to prove it. I'm going to find the terrible tunnel if it's the last thing I do. Like, oh, oh, buddy. I don't know. I thought that was fine. He's like, no, no, no. I'm right. And I can prove it. We're going to you You don't believe me. Great. If there's nothing to be scared of, you shouldn't have a problem coming with me. That's true. I mean, I, I do love that aspect of it. I, I guess I am mostly worried about the fact that he's willing to put himself in additional danger in order to prove that he's right. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, who among us isn't that petty? Oh. <laughs> Fair. Uh, so they walk through and you get to see everybody being like, oh, oh go ahead. So do we want to touch on Boober's song about all his superstitions? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Bad news, is that the name of it? Bad news, bad news. That's why I wrote that in my notes. <laughs> um, I just wrote bad news. We see superstition battling skepticism. And I'm like, why is that bad news? That's like an interesting thing. To no, that's the name of the song. Great job, Adam. Memory of a goldfish. The only thing I wrote down about this song is there is a line in it about meeting a tiger in a zoo, which I mean, I feel like almost every episode we're just like, yep. but the Fraggles know what this is. Do the Fraggles have zoos? Have the Fraggles seen a tiger? You Although... Am I making... Isn't there another episode yeah. where they talk about tigers? Coming up okay. soon, there's a, an episode called Catch a Tale by the Tiger. Uh, yeah, that's right. And so that, that particular song is almost 100% silly creature phrases that have been flipped and turned around. And yeah, mm -hmm. almost all of the world building inconsistencies mm -hmm. come from the lyrics. Yeah, that's... Yeah, we have talked about that. It's always like in the songs. That's like seems to be where the songwriters are just like, whatever, this is a fun lyric. No one will pay attention. We don't know what podcasts are yet. Oh, we pay attention. <laughs> they didn't know that people were going to be like dissecting this on podcasts, you know. Although, interestingly, later, yeah. a, a fact I read in The Tome is that... The Tome. Is that they deliberately did not... They tried to limit the mentions of fraggles or gorgs or doozers or things specific to the episode or the characters so that the songs could be taken out of context and still feel universal. Ah, the old Phil Collins Tarzan approach, I see. Bingo. The tracks. Yeah, there's not really, you know, the songs are very standalone in that way because it's usually like a song about a certain topic or an emotion or something that is happening maybe like in the moment. But there's, yeah, there's nothing about like the big wide world or like story progression or narrative or anything, you know, Yeah. that if you listen to it on its own, you know, it maybe if you're not familiar with the episode, it wouldn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say the obvious exception would be uh, convincing John's song oh yeah because that is yeah 100 episode specific but other than that all the ones we've seen so far have been really universal yeah i mean the convincing john one is also just like so hyper specific to that one character too yeah yeah um yeah so we get to see them going through the tunnel we get to see them like all of the other fraggles being like oh this is actually kind of scary but i'm not scared no it's fine oh it's actually kind of scary but i'm not scared it's fine and then they make it to the terrible tunnel and we get to see why you tie a knot in your tail for good luck. Because they're getting sucked into this weird, like, wind vacuum thing. It it really reminded me of Moroku's wind tunnel from Inuyasha. Nope. 
Sorry. Swing and a miss. <laughs> There's a good chance 14-year-old me would know exactly what you're talking about. It's okay. Hopefully I didn't just alienate our listener. Listener, I hope you enjoyed anime when you were a teenager and you got that <laughs> reference. If you didn't, don't go watch the show. It's not as good when you're a grown-up. Um, oh, that's but probably really true. It's so... It's, oh, trust me. It's bad. Um, not bad. It's just... I didn't... It didn't hold up well. I don't... Mm-hmm. If you enjoy the show, listener, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Anyways, point being, uh, the reason you have a knot in your tail is so if you need to dangle your tail down for somebody in an emergency, they have an easier time holding on to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, such a really sweet little superstitious thing. Like... Not only is their superstition rooted in luck, but it's specifically rooted in a kind of luck that means you're going to be better at helping somebody out in an emergency. I love that. Um, and then, of course, we immediately cut to Boober tying like eight knots in his tail. And it's like, oh, buddy, this is a perfect organic symbolism example of like, oh, you're doing the superstition for the superstition's sake. You don't understand why it was originally a thing. Yeah, because he didn't go to the terrible tunnel with him. He just stayed home and tied knots in his tail was like, see, mm-hmm. it worked. You're safe. I'm tying more knots. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So they get rescued. They make it back. Uh, they talk to the storyteller and they have her update the story. Uh, and there's one phrase in here that is the one that cinched it and let me know that all of this structure and all of this homage was entirely intentional. She specifically talks about Wembley's wine dark muscles. Thank you. The f- Phrase wine dark is a specific phrase in the Odyssey. What? And Uh-oh. not only is it a specific phrase in the Odyssey, it holds a very special place in my heart because that is how we discovered one of the coolest aspects of how human brains work and how dependent on language our brains are. At one point, there were some historians who went through and read the Odyssey. There's no words for blue in the Odyssey. Yeah. They describe the sea as wine dark and they took this and used it as a big part of they they charted when the words for colors mm-hmm. originated and you can see when we start having the words for colors then they start getting used we as a species cannot comprehend color unless we have a word for it and this is one of the ways that we figured out historically when we evolved to have a color to have the understanding of the color blue because we had the word for it. And it was this specific phrase that keyed a lot of people into it because this specific phrase gets used over and over again in the Odyssey to describe the sea. Wow. Here I was just Googling the phrase with the quotes, wine dark muscles, and the only things I could find were people on Muppet forums specifically talking about this song. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I guess that phrase must never have been used before. But apparently... No, it's the it... wine dark sea. Wow. Which, let me double check that just to make sure I'm not talking out of my keister. I absolutely love that. Uh, Traditional English translation, epithet in Homer of, yep, five times in the Iliad, 12 times in the Odyssey. Wow. Uh, First to observe that Homer's descriptions of colors were by modern standards far from accurate, analyzed to discover a total absence of blue from the poet's descriptions of Greek natural synergy, or natural scenery. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I had heard that thing about, you know, humans not having a word or not having a concept of blue until we had a word for it. And same with orange. You know, we were mm-hmm. calling everything red until we had a word for orange. But I I never knew it was connected to this in that way. Yeah, no, there was a dude who was an experiment, raised his daughter without ever exposing her to the word blue. And when she was four, he took her outside and was like, hey, what color is the sky? And she was like, gray. Whoa. Yeah, it's a trip. 
That's bonkers. Yeah. No, one phrase is the thing that, like, cinches this entire structure as, like, no, 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 this is a deeply researched homage from a place of really solid understanding. Wow. Love this episode. Lots of nerd meat on the bone here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love that at this mention of his muscles, Wembley gives this adorable little flex of his arm. I was going to mention that it was, yeah, just, like, a cute little shot. Also good puppeteering. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the storyteller gives us this new verse in which you know the brave Wembley goes and rescues everybody and breaks the wicked spell and well and also like the 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 key point here for me is the storyteller starts telling it like it's the old story and then they interrupt her and are like no 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 it's a different story now and the idea that like yeah we pass these stories on but we're still telling them and still adding to them and we get to change Mm -hmm. them as new stuff happens yes that's our whole thing as a species and getting yeah. to see it in this episode made me really, really happy. Oh, I absolutely love that. So I, I like that at the end we get this, <laughs> we have this weird exchange of Gobo trying to apologize. He says, Wembley, yep. I'm sorry I gave you such a hard time for once you did know what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And oh, you almost got there, Gobo. Just a little backhand right at the last minute there. Well, and then Wembley says, well, it's never happened before. Next time, I'll know better. Oh, right? buddy. So, like, know better oh. than than what? Like, what is the lesson here? That Wembley was like, oh, well, that me being right was just a one-time thing? Yeah, next time I'll, I won't know right. Or, yeah, I didn't know if it was like, next time I'll know better than to be right. Or next time I'll know better how to handle it. It was like a little unclear, but I was just, I had a moment where I was like, oh, Wembley. Buddy. Yeah. You're doing great. Um, and then, yeah, we circle back to Doc and Sprocket, and Doc has plied Sprocket with so many gifts and things to bargain with, and Sprocket finally gives him the horseshoe mm-hmm. for Doc's, what we find out is his collapsible bookcase. Which, can I just say, I laughed so hard. He stands back and he's like, it fits! My collapsible bookcase is complete! And then the whole thing falls over and he goes, and it works! With such genuine enthusiasm. Yes. When would you use a collapsible bookcase? Transportation. Exactly. I guess. So I thinking like, about when you, I'm moving, what a convenience it would be to have I a guess, yeah. Bookcase. You just put a horseshoe in it, it falls apart, and you're like, great, time to just pick up the pieces and move. Mm-hmm. I guess in that sense, collapsible furniture, I was going to say, could be handy, but it also could be very dangerous. Yeah. Keep out of reach of children. Yeah. Shall we talk about how to make the world a little bit fragglier? Um, the way that you could make the world a little bit fragglier is... You know, you can be a friend who both supports your friends and community when they are maybe dealing with some anxieties and either can help ground them or, you know, just like be a comfort and maybe don't just dismiss your friend's weird anxieties. (laughs) Uh, You can make the world a little fragglier by researching where superstitions come from and why they were originally useful and why people originally started practicing them. Yeah, to help you differentiate which ones are are still useful. And which Mm -hmm. ones are bunk. (laughs) And you can pass down your oral history and the stories that give meaning to you and your community through absolute jams. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. That is it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to check out toughpigs.com. Uh, we would love a good review comments we love hearing what you thought about this episode you can also talk about it with us on the tough pigs forums anyone got anything to plug um you can follow me at geek girl grown up on instagram and twitter uh my website is juliagaskell.com and occasionally i write for tough pigs do not perceive me do not follow me i only exist within this contained experience and beyond that i will disperse into a fine mist and you can find me at Beth Anna Cook on social media. That's Anna with two N's. And yeah, occasionally writing stuff for Tough Pigs. Oh, and uh, I guess my Muppet lyrics blog that I update m once or twice a year, ourmuppetmelody.com. Brad. All right. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time down at Fraggle Talk. Don't forget to dance your cares away. Down at Fraggle Talk. Fraggle Talk Classic is brought to you by toughpigs.com. Fraggle Talk Art by Dave Hultine Jr. The Fraggle Rock mark and logo, characters, and elements are trademarks of the Jim Henson Company. All rights reserved. The Fraggle Rock theme song, written by Philip Balsam and Dennis Lee, is used with permission. Special thanks to the Jim Henson Company and the entire Fraggle Rock family. For more from Tough Pigs, please find us at Tough Pigs on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, TeePublic, and Patreon. Fraggle Talk Classic is produced and edited by me, Beth Cook. Thank you to Joe Hennis, the Tough Pigs Muppet Fan Podcast Executive Producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Down at Fraggle Talk. I would like it known that I only have 16 pages of notes on this episode. Jesus. Only. Nerd parentheses affectionate. Mm-hmm.